0: The epic of Gilgamesh is the oldest recorded poem at 4,000 years old, although Gilgamesh is a recurring character in the popular Final Fantasy series of video games. The first video game, Tennis for Two, was invented in 1958, although many would say that the modern video game began in 1985 with Super Mario Brothers on the Nintendo Entertainment System My name's Oliver Fox from the Poetry Society and I've got with me today two poets who have worked to bridge the gap between the world's oldest art form and its newest, Stephen Sexton and Kirsten Irving. Stephen Sexton lives in Belfast. He was the winner of the 2016 National Poetry Competition and the recipient of an ACES award from the Arts Council of Northern Ireland. And he received an Eric Gregory Award in 2018. His first collection, If All the World and Love Were Young, published by Penguin, is shortlisted for the Ford Prize for Best First Collection and navigates memory, grief and loss through the prism of Super Mario World. Kirsten Irving is a Lincolnshire-born poet and voiceover artist and is one of the two editors behind Collaborative Press Sidekick Books. Her work has been published by Happenstance and Salt, widely anthologized and thrown out of a helicopter. She won the 2011 and 2017 Live Canon International Poetry Prizes and is currently working on her second collection. Uh, She was commended in the 2018 National Poetry Competition. Hello, Stephen and Kirsten. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Um, So, Stephen, your debut collection has been released as of two weeks ago? Yeah, 29th of August. 29th of August. uh, Recently. Um, Would you like to kind of set up the idea behind this collection and maybe share a poem from it
1: yeah i'd love to so i mean i guess around 2015 i can date it um you know i was writing a lot of poems that were about paintings about photographs about objects of visual art i guess um you know trying to n- n- you know navigate that whole like process thing that's kind of interesting and kind of not in equal measures, I guess. But I got really bored of it really quickly because I was doing the same thing over and over and over again. And I thought, you know what, why not choose another kind of image? Why not... um you know, not necessarily film, not necessarily photographs. Why not a video game that uh, that I'd spent so much of my youth doing? So I thought in the urge for completeness that you might share in the, the enthusiasm of video games. Um, it's not enough just to write one. If you're going to approach a video game, you have to get all of them. Otherwise, you know, you fail. Um, so I started with one and kind of obsessively, I kept writing these about Super Mario World. Um, initially, I thought I was just trying to describe the game. Then it turned out uh, I was actually, you know, negotiating death and memory and grief. Um, but mostly I, I was starting with Super Mario World. I wanted to praise it as this uh, this beautiful object. So I was, uh, yeah, thinking about this, this sense of how you look at the world outside, which is the real world as we think about it. And, you know, a fantastical world that's on the screen and how these two worlds uh kind of come to interact with each other. Um, So I'll read one right from the very start that uh, that throws those two things really explicitly together. Yoshi's Island 2. Pixels and bits, pixels and bits, their perpendicularity. One of the worlds I live in is as shallow as a pane of glass. The threshold of the window sets a frame around the holly tree, wild funguses slimy with dew and toxicity. The rubies of holly berries sing on the branches the robins hide among, and the veins of ivy vines wind around the slumping trunk and boughs, slowberries in the blackthorn and the carcinogenic bracken. Ground souls loiter along the low dashed wall the daisies loll about. One summer's day I'm summoned home to hear of cells which split and glitch so haphazardly someone is called to intervene with poisons drawn from strange and peregrine trees flourishing in distant kingdoms. We take the air in the garden bitter with berries and mushrooms too toxic to eat
0: where the grass bows in an unexpected breeze. One of the things that I really love about the collection is how we always tend to take for granted any sort of Mario video game, any Nintendo game almost, we take for granted as very kind of abstracted from anything in the real world. It's so kind of bizarre, the design is so strange that it's kind of impossible to think about any of the sprites as having any real analog. And what your book does a lot is constantly bring the fantastical back into the real world like using a word like bracken kind of it's hard to imagine that world that word rather in i don't know the instruction manual for the super nintendo game um like how aware with you were you of i suppose the distance that the game otherwise has to reality um for example in your poem chocolate island 2 i really like how you talk about the rhino and the rhino is a strange fantastical thing but you link it in with art history
1: i think that was one of the instances where i was i was trying to
0: yeah describe images
1: you know how Mm -hmm. how we talk about images how we talk about representation um but that was that was a big thing that i was really interested in because you know the the video games fairly if i may say so unsophisticated compared Mm -hmm. with the technology of of today i mean this whole world this whole video game exists in a file I don't know, a tenth of the size of a photograph that you or I might take at any point, which blows my mind that all of this stuff is is there. Um, and as, as a consequence, as you know, you know, the backgrounds are recycled, um, the trees, the ideas of trees are recycled throughout it. Um, yet, you know, you've progressed, but it's the same one. And I found myself doing this kind of um, performed mistranslation of it where, you know, I have it, it seems to be talking about, you know, what signs are and what languages. So you get a really clear icon of a tree um, but that's not really interesting to say tree so I I look at this tree and I, I look back at the world I'm in and I see a holly tree that's outside so I, I make it specific on exactly the same background elsewhere might become a sycamore tree or, or this sort of thing mm-hmm. so I have to invent this complication I have to invent this specificity to make it interesting I, I think,
0: suppose you know as a child in the late 80s early 90s playing a game like super mario world you're kind of engaged in that process playing a kind of simplistic game where all the sprites are loose representations you're really having to do a lot of work as the player That's to true. create this this world that is you know rudimentary at best especially when you compare to yeah current sort of media
1: too and I think that's
0: the other thing that interested me is,
1: you know, the adult version of myself returning to this kind of world versus the child version of myself who spent so much time in it. Um, You know, the adult self saying, well, what kind of a tree is that? Like, well, it can't just be a tree where the child version of myself was, is OK that chestnuts are walking around. And when the adult version of myself says, hey, come on, wait a minute, that doesn't happen. Um, So where, uh, that's another distance, I guess, that I was interested in Is is this. Um, this gulf of understanding or how we go about thinking about images or um, or how you make the fantastical um normal i guess or or comprehendable
0: did you return to the game much in the writing of the book did you tend to rely on your own sort of nostalgic memory or did you yeah did you go back to the source material? i
1: did I did go back um for a while I watched some really helpful long plays because you know i wanted to Give my full attention to something and there's there's a difference um i guess between playing it oneself and seeing somebody else play it it's which is another thing that's really interesting about how video games work generally um, and with mario you get to see yourself animating yourself you know there's this there's this cycle you know where you are both mario and not mario Um, And you're controlling him, um, but you're also yourself looking at yourself being controlled by yourself Um, and a sort of bizarre um, set of frames that that kind of emerges. Um, So I did go back to it and I kind of enjoyed participating in that because I felt the the childhood version of myself was a long way away through those frames. Um,
0: And if I if I went back to it, I could perhaps get back there. So and I'd be interested to hear your view on this, Kirsten, as an editor of Anthologies. Um, that you know feature poetry about video games. Is there a kind of fundamental, I suppose, joke in the book or a running joke? Obviously, the subject matter is really quite serious, but there seems to be a, a kind of running awareness of, you know, the, the accepted place of video games, especially Super Nintendo games, in culture and their status as a kind of almost like a cultural junk food. Right? An example of that would be your quotations at the start of the book you've got Susan Sontag John Ashbery and Mario Mario's (laughs) quote being it's a me Mario that seems to me like it's kind of saying something about the sort of commonly held place of video games in our culture and or you know the audacity of using video games in a work of poetry I'd really be interested to hear what both of you think about that and that sort of slightly strained relationship between video games and like the rest of arts culture
2: Ooh. i love that john asbury quote by the way <laughs> i think it works perfectly um for us um we've never really seen video games as a lower form of culture but mm-hmm. we were well aware that that is the place they have held because they're so young as yeah. the art form, as you said earlier um
0: but does it mean that as an editor is there a kind of inherent novelty that like, are you escaping that novelty or are you embracing it right that, that's i guess that's my question
2: i think we had to work hard to get away from it just being a gimmick mm-hmm. um and there's a lot of um shape and form uh, you can borrow from video games that tallies with shape and form in poetry which is why we chose to structure coin opera 2 in four worlds uh, i think it was pluck and plunder island um i think it's beat-em-up uh yeah i'd have to actually look at the the contents because it's been a few years but we've got um four different worlds representing four different genres of games the beat-em-up the quest um and the sort of party gathering and then we used um we used the sort of tropes of these types of games um to create forms of their own poetic forms of their Mm -hmm. own um so one that i did with abigail parry was uh a pair of poems um, based on the beat-em-up mode. Um, so I was a big Street Fighter player when I was young. I was very much a 90s kid. I uh, borrowed my brother's equipment all the time to play. Um, and uh, in the beat-em-up mode poem we designed, um, we took a line each, or so we took a, sorry, a couplet each, and on the second line of the couplet, whatever verbs were there, you had to block them on your term with nouns based on those verbs. So if you had uh, tricking as mm-hmm. a verb, you would have to have the noun of a trick in the next line. So you'd be continually blocking your opponent until you decided you'd finished. And we wanted to kind of actually create something new as opposed to just kind of retelling the narratives of, of computer games, which would necessarily limit the audience as mm-hmm. well.
1: You know what, I guess what I, I thought I was doing is, I mean, I feel as though this is a remarkably—I don't know—traditional book. It's it's mm. it's nature poems, effectively. I mean, that's that's yeah. all it is. Like it it just so happens that, unlike the nature poems of Wordsworth or uh, Michael Long he's a poet I love very much, um, unlike any of these traditional kind of mm-hmm. nature poems, the only difference is that um, perhaps you haven't seen these landscapes I'm describing. I mean, mm. but when I think of Wordsworth, I don't know exactly where he's describing, if anything you want to know what I'm talking about there's a couple of hundred million games out there <laughs> any mm. one of them could be plugged in and you will see these landscapes um so I I've, I don't really think that this is fundamentally any different from poems of landscape any kind of nature poetry um they're the same thing as far as I'm concerned but I do I do appreciate that I think there's a little bit of a joke in that I mean that was part of my thinking
0: so one thing that I try to do while going through your book, was play through the original game, Super Mario World. Um, I never had a Super Nintendo as a kid, so I never completed Super Mario World. Um, I couldn't get that far. I, I did my best. I got to um, just past the Forest of Illusion. It's pretty uh, tricky. It is. And one thing that really struck me trying to pair uh, poems with levels was there are some levels I just couldn't get to. Um, I didn't know the secret or I didn't know the trick to getting into them. Uh, And it got me thinking about video games as this this weird unique art form that are quite difficult to access. And I feel like a lot of people tend to say the same about poetry um, in that you kind of have to put some work into it. And I was wondering what your thoughts were both.
2: I think good poetry lets you do that uh, and invites interaction. Um, Certainly uh, one of the things that the rhythm of your um, sequence in um, All the World and Love Were Young um, is that at first I thought, oh, he's gone more thematic than formal. But then I look at it and the way the rhythm and the pace of each poem works like a side scroller which is my favorite genre of video game (laughs) because I cannot deal with 3D.
1: No, I I mean, I I feel as though I've offended some dear friends by saying (laughs) I just don't Uh, believe in uh, Super Mario 64. I just just don't believe in it. It's
2: filthy and wrong.
0: (laughs) It is. It's Um, ideologically um, improper. These (laughs) are not the views of the poetry society. Um,
2: (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I I actually got that kind of that pace and the uh, almost overwhelming rhythm with which not only the game takes you and destroys you at times, but also life and traumatic, frightening events Mm -hmm. like the death of a mother. The other thing, um, going back to your point about the worlds and the interaction creating the worlds, is that in in Mario, unless you go down that pipe, you're never going to discover that world, so did it ever exist? Or is each playthrough of the game a world in itself, made up of smaller villages? Um, And each time you take a different route, uh, it just kind of creates a new world... I'm getting a bit into um, Terraria territory here or Skyrim Mm. territory where you're moving on to your sort of sandbox games where you really do make the world. You really do create the characters through interaction with other people over the Internet.
0: But I mean, how does that feel as a poet, Stephen, the idea that someone might just not get a reference especially in a book with very you know esoteric references or very sort of specialized niche references was that something you had to come to terms with that a little, it wouldn't be for yeah. everyone
1: a little bit yeah um and, and that's why i guess I, I do like to think of it as as being a fairly traditional book of i mean i really i don't exaggerate when i say i think of it as being nature poems i think of them as being pastoral poems um because they are performing exactly that function um it's just a difference of of the landscape so i, I was I was unsure about it, and that's something that did concern me. Um, and then I thought, if I'm going to try and do this video game, if I'm going to try to praise it, which is what I started trying to do, um, I would map it, I would give it its credits, too. So I have this silly, extraordinary couple of pages where I basically write the book a second time, but including only the nouns. Um, and, you know, there's something kind of cheeky about um, asking If one is fortunate enough to have a reader there at that uh, point, at the end of the book, Um, there's something kind of cheeky about making them read the book twice, which um, which kind of amuses (laughs) me, you know. Um, But all of those, you know, I hope that one might be able to orient once, you know, if there was a moment where, you know, it was like, okay with that bit, okay with that bit. I have no idea what's going on, that perhaps there'd be a reference that might explain what that could be. Um, And I don't know how I feel about difficulty generally. I mean, it's something that if I perceive something as being difficult sometimes i turn away from it Mm. so I. it's a big concern you know um but i i guess i hope that there's you know just taken as it is it's uh some stories about magical landscapes and i sort of hope that in the first instance on a first level of reading like a kind of non-metaphorical one that it might just exist like that
2: uh, I've always had the opinion with difficulty that it's fine to put quote unquote difficult things in there. I used to grow up reading just William stories and I didn't understand half the words in those, but I love the stories. But you, if, if you are invested in the reader, really getting invested in your poem or your sequence, you've got to give them some kind of foothold and they could choose whether they want to clamber up using that. But you, I, I kind of feel frustrated when there is no way in except a classical education.
1: Sure. I can entirely
0: understand Kirsten, will you read us a poem?
2: I'd love to read a poem. Which poem are you going to read for us? Um, I'm going to go to Coin Opera 2, because mm-hmm. we're on video games. I really had to think about which games to. Um, I'd love play- playing, because to be honest, most of my gaming was in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my favourite games was Lemmings, uh, mostly because we had an Amiga 600, and uh, my parents flat out refused to buy us a fancy console. So, um I reimagined level 11, I believe, of Lemmings, which stumped me and my brother and I think my dad even for about a month until we worked out the trick. Um, And the theme tune, they usually borrowed uh, out-of-copyright songs or folk songs um, and uh, kind of did a little MIDI version of them for the theme tune. So if you don't know Lemmings, anyone who's listening, please play it. It's a lot of fun. Um, You have to rescue a certain number of these little uh, identical figures, many of uh, using their different skill sets, Um, and I started to think maybe they weren't so identical after all. Uh, So this is based on the song playing in the background of Level 11. It's called Ten Green Bottles. She tells me she was a builder before all this. Before that, a miner. I've been staring at her flexed palm for an hour. In the distance, Francis has climbed a glowing cliff and walks towards the edge. He's going to fall, let me through, I beg. She shakes her mossy hair and holds her T-shape. Frank plummets with a small cry into chalk. Mike begins to scale the side. I ask her again to step by. She nods towards the new mountaineer who walks off the edge, but opens a yellow parasol and drifts down. The gods are learning, she says. And then Mike stops over the other side, inches from escape, and spreads his arms like her. Now, she says, and I find myself scrambling up the bright block, which I see now has arrows pointing back to her and the trapped hundreds. We must start from the other side, she calls, to get there at all. Now open your parasol. And I do. And as I float to the floor, the golden door is there, just beyond my steadfast predecessor. You spoke to Marianne? Mike grunts, his fleshy blockade so like hers. Do you want to save the others? He's such a different creature to the one who went up. Yes, I want to save them. Then turn around and dig. As I start to claw, I hear muffled crying and scurrying, the others panicking that we will always be stuck here, chanting the names of the dead and the missing. I'm not a miner like you, Marianne. Help me, I shout into the stone face. I'm not a miner, comes back. Just as my stripped hands threaten to show bone and my small heart nearly clocks out, an eye appears in the tunnel and joy and feet flood it. I can see it. I can see the door. Is it true? It's not a myth. I see it too. They run as their robes will allow towards freedom, towards Mike, who screams stop and explodes. And it's over the crumbs of his body they go, it's the door, it's the door at last, woohoo! I, Marianne, go! Go, you idiot! So I do, and only when my hand is on the doorframe and I can smell grass, do I turn to see the countdown start above her head.
0: Thank you. So... One thing that I really like about that poem is its use of sense, kind of you know non-visual sense, <laughs> line about smell at the end, um, and it slightly goes back to what we were saying before about you know having to put yourself into older video games because their representations are so simplistic. But uh, I'm curious to hear more about the role that kind of nostalgia and familiarity plays into your writing of a poem like that Ooh. um you know if you remember a game like lemmings are you remembering scents and smells or like how much of the world that you're remembering is a world that you kind of created as a kid
2: uh so lemmings was a very simple game and the the dominating two senses at the time were going to be visual and uh oral so the the tinny music playing in the background and then seeing all these little figures but it was Actually, a strange emotional connection I had, Mm. which is a strange thing to say about lemmings, but I always felt this horrible guilt about you couldn't finish the level if you had a blocker, which is the little T-shaped lemming. Um, You couldn't stop them being a blocker and you couldn't (laughs) finish the level until you had destroyed them. So you had to explode this really helpful, (laughs) tenacious lemming. Otherwise, you were stuck there forever. And I always felt this racking guilt (laughs) over having to explode them and watching the countdown go while they were still... Vigilantly maintaining their vigil. Um, so that led me into imagining, like, zooming right in among the lemmings as individuals and trying to conjure a more three dimensional world through different senses, as you say.
0: Crucially, I think there's always a looping soundtrack in all video games. And I'd be interested whether meditative experiences of those games, these kind of, has had an effect on your writing. Um, Even the way you think about poetry beyond the poems that you're sharing today, um, you know, growing up, basically doing the same activity over and over, Mm. you know, immersing yourself in the same 16 bars of a 16-bit soundtrack for countless hours as a 10-year-old. Like, do you think that seeps into your work? in a broader sense
2: um i kind of feel spoiled as a child of the 90s that i didn't have everything that children have now i didn't have games on my phone didn't have sophisticated games like that and so i think something that poetry and the games of my childhood have in common is both repetition and the the need for focus Mm. you had to you had to really like keep going you didn't have save points a lot of these so you really had to pick yourself up when you died and had to go right back to the start um and and i think that that has actually sort of fed into my love of repetition now in poetry um when we did the kickstarter for coin opera two actually we had a top level reward of a custom poem on a game of your choice and claire Trevienne supported us and requested fallen london uh, which is a text based uh sort of steampunk gothic world part fantasy um and the back button basically if you go along a certain route of choices um it's very simple, very beautiful storytelling it's really quite morish and addictive um but the uh the thing that kept popping up was just this phrase, perhaps not. So it's uh, if you decide not to pursue a path and you want to go back to the previous screen, you have to say perhaps not. So that came quite to shape the whole um, the whole poem for Claire. So at the end of everything, this is perhaps not.
0: And In some ways, that's just a kind of menu function. So it's just part of the architecture of the programming. You know, and that's why it keeps appearing is that at some point someone's gone. Okay, the menu needs two options. It's a menu that's going to appear countless times. Let's use this turn of phrase.
2: Yeah, but it was so it was so elegant. It was quite subtle. It was. It also sort of conned you into thinking you'd made that decision.
0: <laughs> so, Stephen, repetition in "If All the World In Love Were Young," um, mm-hmm. clearly you've got your sixteen syllable lines. I do. I think is There's loads. Most of overt examples. Yeah,
1: so. which was, I mean, it was one of those things that's kind of amusing for me. But as a, you know, as I guess. Maybe we would wonder sometimes about how certain formal procedures can be useful for the language and all that. Sixteen syllables is too big to do anything meaningful. You can say whatever you want, but sixteen syllables—like it doesn't—it's not a formal restraint that's meaningful in any way. Um, but I wanted to do that because I wanted to try to get to the bittiness of it. You know, to have this. So I guess. Um, I think what you were saying earlier, Kirsten, that it's not, it's not enough or it wasn't enough for me to simply do a narrative again or to narrate what happens. And indeed, I don't I have an entirely different narrative. Um, but to try to make a kind of event in the language, to try to actually approximate what it could feel like. Um, and I don't necessarily know if that's something that one can succeed at. Um, but I certainly tried like to to do this, you know, to get this sense of, of, of repetition of kind of of ceremony is the other thing it's one of the things that perhaps unites I mean this is a big elegy um but what you were saying a moment ago Kirsten about not having uh, games on your phone I mean it kind of reminds me that you know it's it used to be a thing that you went to you know you you know it's not with you all the time you come home from school and you go to it and um I remember reading as much as I could about you know just some people talking about it. And one of the things that Shigeru Miyamoto said was that he wanted games to be a destination for play, which seems interesting to me that, you know, it would be a place that he felt people would actually go to, you know, or it it was, it was not a thing that you're also doing. It's a thing that you specially do. Um, So I guess this sense of, you know, I guess with any kind of ceremony or I mean, elegies are full of repetitions often one of the things that they do Um, because I suppose they're always trying to recover um, or they're trying to work through a feeling. Um, and I guess Super Mario is full of repetition, um, the way that you described you know, the landscapes, um, but the actions are the same, um, except that they get more difficult or the, the situations become more complicated. Um, but I think one of the marvellous things about Mario is that you get taught how to play it as it starts, just in its, the delicacy of its procedures, which is a, a remarkable thing.
2: Um, like growing up. Things just get more difficult. They do. <laughs> <So> <laughs> there's a cool, there's <laughs> a
0: cool poetry connection in terms of how Mario teaches you. So in a recent interview, uh, Koichi Hayashida, who is the director of the newer Super Mario platformers, has said that the levels are actually designed according to the principles of Kisho Tenketsu, which is a principle of Chinese poetry. Uh, which teaches in four sections how you introduce a topic, develop it, give it an unexpected twist, and then bring it to a conclusion. Huh. And apparently, that is the underlying oh. principle of all of the devil design in at least the recent Super Mario games. It's incredible. I remember watching
1: go. a YouTube video where there was a um, from along from the nineties, sometime in the mid nineties, um, of some people at Nintendo saying not that, but something similar about they. I mean, I think that's maybe comparable, Kirsten, to what you were saying about the idea of a foothold, right? In in mm. something of mm. difficulty or a piece of work, like you have to you have to offer something, right? Can't yeah, or you? even
2: the Easter egg. Sure. Yeah. The idea of uh, something that not everybody will appreciate, but it's there, and it's just an extra bit of treasure.
0: Yeah. And you know that whoever finds it is gonna love it even more because they feel like it's just for them, right? Yes.
2: It feels yeah. like they're talking to you directly.
0: Yeah, I think. Any sort of I don't know. It feels we're talking about video games like a niche subject because it's you know, the most massive entertainment industry of all time ever. But there is still something that feels kind of niche and private. Um, I guess because so much of our time spent playing games as kids was on our own, cross-legged in front of a TV. Um, I read what you said about it being a place you go, and I think the TV does have a special place in your book. It's almost a character. In of itself in the collection,
1: yeah. I mean, it was a. I mean, I don't know about either of yours, but mine was a was a was a big TV. You know, it was it was an old TV. It mm. was. I mean, I, 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 yeah. I mean, I guess it was an old TV that wasn't thrown away. There was a newer one somewhere, but I mean, this this <laughs> yeah. was you the know, gaming one was always a bit rubbish. Yeah, no, it's big and and your big clunky buttons that mm. um yeah that really really thump when you try to change it to one of the eight the ch- available lines channels across the screen. All that, the the what, what is what is that kind of uh thing again I can't
0: remember the particular
1: type of t- equipment CRT that th- yeah that's what it is isn't it yeah. that particular
0: no we were never allowed to plug the video game stuff into the nice living room <laughs> was <It> was <laughs> <laughs> hidden away somewhere else um
2: actually could I um just reading through um the world in love Were young um reminded me actually of seeing uh Christian Domlin a uh, games journalist talking about his experience, not of um, games as an escape, but of actually games as a way of coming together with his father who really didn't appreciate what he did for a living. Right. And his dad was the son of a cop in LA and had grown up in the 40s. And so they played LA Noire together. Right. And suddenly it was like his dad just came to life and he said, yes, that's right. That's the right car. This, the, <laughs> All of the details were so perfect. And he had inherited this semi-photographic memory from his own cop father. Okay. So it took him straight back and it let him share a world he'd known with his son. It was so exciting.
0: That's incredible. You said earlier that you kind of started wanting to write about Super Mario. At what point in the writing did you realise that this was a way to map on kind of much bigger, more serious, more personal topics? Or was it just something that was kind of happening already in... You start to notice. I don't. Th- I think
1: it was largely subconscious. I mean, I, I wanted to write a poem for every single level of, of Super Mario World because that's a kind of ridiculous. Um, and I, I set out to do that, uh, and you know when it, it was this process where I was thinking about the game, I was thinking how do I describe that, and then I was you know ended up thinking of when I played that game more often, which is when I was a child. So I thought about my childhood When I started thinking about my childhood. I started thinking about where I grew up. I started thinking about my, my mother who died, which is what this this book's for, uh, who this book's for. Um, But I was taken by surprise. Like I wasn't trying, I didn't set out to write an elegy. I set out to write a book about Super Mario um, or not even a book. I, I started doing a joke about Super Mario World. Um, So maybe, I don't know, 15 or so in I started there was this kind of creeping presence that kind of emerged. And it was like I became aware there was something I was avoiding in a way mm-hmm. that I, I wasn't aware at the start. And I had to make that call. Like, am I am I going to allow myself to do this or not? And I decided to to go with that instinct.
0: Were there any, ever any moments or writing the book where you just kind of felt like, actually, I wish that I didn't have this framework and could write something completely different. You know, did you ever feel restrained by this framework? <laughs> I kind of didn't, um, which which kind of um, amuses me in in
1: some ways. I, I don't did you know. expect to be.
0: When um, you no, realised what the kind of structure of the book was, did you think at some point I'm going to be really sick? Of this. I'm going to
1: get into I'm going
0: to get into trouble. There's some that are harder. I mean, some mm-hmm. of the
1: short weirder levels. There's just I mean, there's nothing to go on. You <laughs> know, there's, there's hardly anything there. So so they become absurd. I mean, there's I mean, there's there's one that um, towards the end of the game, I think. Uh, there's lots of little flying. Uh, Koopas Mm -hmm. uh, with their little wings (laughs) yeah they've become you know interpreted as like one of those first um, you know one of the first films Sally Gardner at a gallop the the film about the the horse which I guess was made to prove that um, or, or made to discern whether or not there was any point at which a horse had all four feet um, all four hooves off the ground. So, I mean, that's a remarkably tenuous one that just because these little creatures are flying, um, uh, that's been interpreted as, um, as this very early Muybridge film. Um, But also things, you know, I guess the effect that has is um, things become kind of manic. They become um, distressed. You know, even the, I guess the established pattern that I set up of trying to interpret the video game into the real world, um, that starts falling apart, uh, which I guess is not the worst um, effect if uh, if it's a, a story about, you know, grief, about things falling apart to some extent.
0: Would you like to read us another poem from the collection?
1: I would love to. This one's from about a third of the way through, I guess. Uh, This is in the world called Vanilla Dome, Vanilla Fortress. I'm swimming with the coelacanths rotting in the flooded fortress. The unbeautiful things propel themselves in flat trajectories. So many years we have missed you, little fish, little Lazarus, fossil king of the underbite. Not that you knew you were missing. They will not see me swimming here, the darkest fathoms of the keep, where spikes are falling from the roof and bone machines roam dismally among spine-topped anemones marauding on the castle floor. To suffer, suffer everywhere and not a moment stop to think, let the world go on without me. The next life will find me happy and adrift, peddling the swans some bright day. The sun names the boats one by one in the marina. This will have been so long ago by then, and I will have missed you. For so long will I have missed you.
0: So the collection itself kind of follows a narrative arc that also follows the level progression in the video game. Um, did that feel fairly natural kind of mapping those together kind of
1: i mean one of one of the most comforting things about uh setting out to do this is because i I knew exactly how many pages there were going to be uh there are 72 uh levels (laughs) in super mario world um i think there's a there's a there's at least one that i repeat um that was kind of comforting because i i you know and if i was stuck with one i just thought i'll just move on to the next one um and it became it became fun to make up these uh, you know silly little processes to to things um just kind of strange stuff that um the forest of illusion in the in the in the game is uh notoriously tricky i guess it's fair to, to say um all the things that you're supposed to have learned up to that point um kind of turn against you there's there's all kinds of ways um out of these levels that you might not immediately um opt for. Um so I did lots of like kind of really silly things where there's like a a Baudelaire poem, it's his poem Correspondance about being in a darkened forest of language or something. I mean I think all of the poems in that contain a phrase that I have translated from this French poem <laughs> because that would be what the forest of illusion would be like. It would be full of this kind of nonsense. Um, but it just became really fun to think of how can I how can I live up to the, the strange promise of what all these these worlds seem to be. Um, how can I do that? Um, I guess the other thing to say is that it the world keeps getting bigger. I mean, it, it the book literally starts in a small room in the house. I grew up in looking out at the garden in the next world, it sort of gets to the size of, of Northern Ireland where I live. The next one, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, I think all of the continents might be accounted for um, in some way or another
0: kirsten um one of the things i really like about sidekick is the kind of thematic elements to a lot of your anthologies especially the head books um be it like video games in the coin opera series or broader themes like you know robots bats um what the other two uh
2: the underwater world and Catullus.
0: yeah and of course then like the boss battles in the coin opera series as well yes um, which I think is probably the most overt example I've seen of that kind of, right, here's the theme, here's the rules, see what you can do.
2: Yeah, so we ended each section. Um, and so John was actually, John Stone was the main um, instigator of Let's Do a Video Games Anthology. Mm-hmm. Um, and that took me straight back into my childhood because John is a, a current gamer. He's researching a PhD in games and poetry at the moment. But with the boss battles, yeah, John was like, we've got we've to end these sections in style. It's like, how do we do that? It's like, boss battle. You n- you need a boss and the boss theme to the section as well. And it was just a nice bombastic way to p- propel you into the next section.
0: Uh, and I think the, the Street Fighter-based poem you talked about earlier, that's an example of one of those, right?
2: Um, yeah, the beat-em-up was... Um, Uh, was very much a sort of a way of uh, keeping the form and and inventing a new form using video games as well to make it sort of blend organically with the poetry. The other two um, we had were party-gathering poems, so Final Fantasy style each. uh, Again, the first person does a couplet, the second person has to introduce another person into the party, and then you carry on. And the other one was a strategy game where each person has their own agenda or subject and has to work... um, A word relating to that subject into uh, every other line Mm -hmm. while making it coherent.
0: Would you see video games as kind of like a modern form of folklore? Yeah, I would. I mean, Uh, you know, they're big budget, they're made by huge teams, but there is a kind of immediacy to the things that they're talking about, exploring.
2: And for people, especially of our sort of generation as well, they're a shared cultural reference. Hmm. Um, and people have emotional ties to these games very clearly.
0: And speaking of folklore, <laughs> um, Kirsten, you were commended in the 2018 National Poetry Competition for your poem "Namazu at the Physicist's Funeral.
2: Thank it's you very much. It's not a
0: video game poem, but this is ostensibly a National approach Competition podcast. So <laughs> would you mind reading that for us to close off this podcast?
2: I would love to. Uh it does mix science and folklore, so I guess there is a
0: there are Stephen, are there catfish in Super Mario World
1: In in Super Mario three, there is a there's a curious big fish that tries to eat you, if you remember, remember that. Uh
2: might well be a nod to that uh, folkloric monster fish.
1: Oh yeah. 'Cause I I, I did I, I did I remember the only piece of research that I think is uh that I, that, that I did that was new was like the Koopa and the kappa mm. like are mm. clearly the same thing
2: i've never actually made the link between kupa and kappa me neither I I was until i was now. i was
1: looking it up and i guess one of the th- i don't you know much more about it than i do but the kappa i think in some traditional understandings might have had a little bowl of water on its head it's the
2: source of their strength
1: so oh. you jump on their heads
2: ah! you kick it off their heads Gee. is it
1: like it must be right Yes, it must be
2: yeah now you say it yeah I think I, I think I was foxed because um, Capra are river demons. Sure. And so the, these uh, Cooper appeared on land and sometimes they flew. Sure, well. which
1: doesn't sound quite right. But I mean, the description's right, isn't it? Like, you know,
2: They're sort of beasts, shells.
0: Hmm. Some of them fly.
2: They do. It's, oh my gosh, sorry, this has <laughs> left me with so much to look into. I have <laughs> had a lot of new questions. It's
0: brilliant. <laughs> so, Kirsten, what's going on in this poem?
2: Uh, so, uh, The Legend of Namazu is um, a giant monstrous catfish thousands of years old in the oceans of Japan uh, whose thrashings about cause earthquakes and tsunami. There was a a physicist called Motoji Ikea um, based at Osaka University who, um, well, I've got a quote from uh, him at the start of this um, poem which says, technology may yet show that there is something yet to the old catfish legends. Um, This is from Earthquakes and Animals, From Folk Legends to Science. So he actually tried pulsing a catfish with electricity over a period of time to see whether the catfish responded. And in actual fact, what he determined was catfish, like livestock, respond to fluctuations in the tectonic plates and uh, electrical impulses and head for a safer spot. So they don't cause it, but they respond to it. But I like the idea that all this time he'd never known he'd actually captured the great Namazu himself. Namazu at the Physicist's Funeral The catfish pulls on a trench coat, slides a sweet wrap of fin through each sleeve, turns up the collar. This is the first funeral Namazu has been to since being hatched by lightning and foddered on wrecks some thousand years before. What does one do? They were not so much captor and captive as colleagues, Ikea caught him on a small, white day, a blowy day, so the light play on the water covered his pounce. From then on, home for Namazu was a tank in a lab in osaka U. Ikea pulsed Namazu, not to torment, nor bring him to being, but to find out what he knew of earthquakes. Their building, their coming, their electric drumming on the hill. What Namazu knew of earthquakes? Plenty. Shivers born in the rips of his gills, fanned by his slapping tail, made thug by Namazu himself, made swole to cut the waves and bring back skulls. Ikea would flick the switch hundreds of times, sending blue bold charges through Namazu's body as long, lazy whip lines, as dragonfish teeth. The catfish felt them as seismic echoes, as wigs of sea fog, rumpled skies. Namazu dulls his scales to black. Pulls on a hat and shades and smooths his unkempt barbells. At the graveside, a woman sobs silently, trembling, as life flows through her again and again.
0: That was Namazoo at the Physicist's Funeral by Kirsten Irving. It was commended in the most recent National Poetry Competition. Uh, the National Poetry Competition, as of this recording, is open for entries. If you have a poem that you would like to submit... You can do so via our website, poetrysociety.org.uk. This year's judges are Mona Arshi, Maurice Riordan and Helen Mort. There's a first prize of £5,000, nine other cash prizes, as well as publication by the Poetry Society and support in readings and further opportunities in the years ahead. Thanks, both of you, for coming today. Thanks. Thank you. This has been a podcast from the Poetry Society. To get involved in our projects, events, competitions and prizes, visit us at poetrysociety.org.uk.